Hello everyone, and welcome back to episode 9 of MedReg News. We're still taking a close look at cardiology at the moment, and today's episode is a goldmine of goodness, all about channelopathies. What are channelopathies, I hear some of you ask. What are the main ones that cardiology trainees need to be aware of? What are the causes? How do we diagnose them? How do we manage them? Well, we're going to answer all these questions and more today. And to do so, we've spoken to the brilliant Professor Pierre Lambiazzi to help us with some of the heavy lifting. Professor Lambiazzi is a consultant cardiologist and is the Professor of Cardiology at University College London and Bart's Heart Centre. He graduated from Oxford University in the early 90s and trained at St George's Hospital and the Hammersmith Hospital in London. He has published over 300 research papers and is an editor for five journals, including the European Heart Journal. We recorded our chat together in July 2022 and over the course of the next 20 minutes, we cover quite a lot of ground. So I'm just going to flag up a couple of things in advance so you don't feel like you have to keep stopping and scribbling things down. At one point, we refer to the latest European Society of Cardiology guidelines on sudden cardiac death. Professor Lambiazzi explains that these guidelines were being renewed in August and if you fancy doing some extra reading, you'll be pleased to know that they are now available online. I'll put a link to these for you in the show description. Then, when we're talking about Brugada syndrome, Professor Lambiazzi mentions a paper that he had published in the JAC-CE, that is the Clinical Electrophysiology branch of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And in this paper, he talks about the Brugada risk score, which is a brilliant risk stratification tool for Brugada syndrome that any of you can use for free online and was devised by Professor Lambiazzi and a number of his colleagues. The risk calculator can be found at brugadariskscore.com and I'll drop a link to that Jack paper in the description too. But that is enough of my preamble. Let's get into today's chat with Professor Lambiazzi, all about channelopathies. And stick around to the end to find out about his surprising love of scuba diving. I'll see you on the other side. Hope you enjoy it. Could I start by asking you, how do we define inherited cardiac conditions for a start? And then how do we define channelopathies? Right. Well, inherited cardiac conditions is essentially referring to any heart disease where there's a heritable cause. Normally, we're referring to patients who have an autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive trait, which is then manifest. And of course, inherited cardiac conditions covers both cardiomyopathic disorders as well as ion channel disorders. It's a very, very large topic. And very often you'll find as a general cardiologist or a general SPR, as it were, in cardiology, these patients are sitting in the general cardiology clinics. So they don't come with a label on their forehead with, a, I have an inherited cardiac condition. So part of the enjoyment of doing ICC, as it were, is the fact that it's hiding in plain sight, as it were, in your heart failure clinic or in your AF clinic, these patients are sitting there and it just requires a bit of questioning, I would say, to find these patients. And uh, there are some, can be some clues on the, obviously, the history from the patient, the family history is critical. I would strongly encourage you all to take a family history from any patient you see, particularly patients with heart failure, because you may well find they're inherited dilated cardiomyopathies, for example, and 
And on that topic, is there a genetic explanation for why people have these conditions? When you say it's important to look into the family history, what exactly are you looking for? Well, essentially, I mean, autosomal, you probably remember from medical school, you know, the good old Mendelian classification, as it were, of uh, inheritance. You have autosomal dominant genes, which are manifest if you inherit one, one gene from a parent. And then autosomal recessive will only be manifest if you inherit both mutations, as it were, from each parent. So, for example, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is an autosomal dominant disease. It's caused by mutations in genes for myosin, which are sarcomeric proteins in the cardiac myocyte. And this means that the, these proteins are defective. So if a patient inherits that mutation, then they, there's a high probability they will have a clinical form of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When it gets complicated is because you can have genes which are partially expressed and that's maybe related to compensation in the system as it were other genes compensating so for example in long qt syndrome you could have someone who's carrying an autosomal dominant mutation for an iron channel so for a potassium channel and their qt interval might only be say 480 milliseconds now a normal uh, person will be up to 460 if it's uh, a female uh, 450 if it's male but we define long qt as a greater qt of over 500 they may have another relative who uh, has a correct QT interval of 520 milliseconds with the same mutation. So then the question is, why has this patient got a correct QT of 520 and this one maybe only borderline 470, 480? And that's because uh, a bit like uh, every system in our body, you have reserves. So in the action potential, you have lots of iron channels um, responsible for repolarization, potassium currents, calcium currents. And so you may, if all those other currents are functioning normally, then your action potential may stay short because there's other currents that are, are compensating. But if you have what we call a, a polymorphism, so a slight variation in the gene, so the, gene, the, gene, the ion channel is functional, maybe it's functional 80% of normal. So in, in most of us, we wouldn't even notice that. But if you're carrying a, another mutation, which is knocking down the function of the ion current by 50%, suddenly these things start to add up. And that's why you end up with patients with variable expression, variable severity of the disease, because there are other genes which are maybe defective as well. We call those compound heterozygotes, or they're combining mutations or, or polymorphisms, and that can exaggerate the severity of the disease or the severity of the mutation. You yeah. mentioned long QT syndrome in there. That's one of yeah. the main ones. What, what are the other main channelopathies that okay. really should be aware of? Yeah, so essentially you need to be aware of long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, catecholinergic polymorphic VT, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's essentially CPVT, so adrenaline-triggered ventricular tachycardia. Then there's a small print disorders, such as short QT and um, certain conduction disorders. But I, I would focus very much on, if you're starting out in this area, looking at carefully, reading through about long QT, Brugada and CPVT. Those are what I would call the the headline conditions you need to be aware of. Do these channelopathies tend to cause symptoms in and of themselves? Well, yes. I mean, uh, most of the patients who are carrying significant mutations will have symptoms, but they can be quite uh, general. So patients may simply complain of palpitations with long QT because they just have ectopic beats. Or, um, but they, the, the important symptoms such as severe dizziness, um, pre-syncope, and syncope will manifest in long QT and Brugada. 
sometimes these patients present with epilepsy, so they're labelled by neurologists as being epileptic, but it should be mandatory in any patient with epilepsy to have an ECG performed because the ventricular arrhythmias from long QT or Brugada, for example, can cause collapse and an epileptic fit. So it's important to rule out uh, an iron channelopathy in these conditions when you're investigating someone with epilepsy. The other issues, so for example, some patients um, with premature atrial fibrillation, so atrial fibrillation at a young age, that can be a manifestation of Brugada syndrome, which is due to mutations in the sodium channel. There are inherited causes of atrial fibrillation, which are due to other iron channel mutations, although they're pretty rare, but do run in family. When people come to you and you're suspecting that there may be something underlying like a channelopathy, what helps you make that diagnosis? Is it all based on the ECG? Well, the ECG is the first step and you'll get a huge amount of information from the ECG because most of the diagnostic criteria rests on the ECG pattern. So if we start with long QT syndrome, a corrective QT interval of 500 milliseconds or more will be, an, will be a diagnostic feature of long QT. Having excluded common causes of QT prolongation, like funny drugs such as psychotropics or hypokalemia, hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia. I mean, these are all common sense things, but you need to rule these things out first before you label someone with an inherited condition like long QT. But having done that, the, the main feature is the QT prolongation. And then you would look at, we, we get very excited about T waves in electrophysiology and inherited cardiac conditions particularly. So you might see bifid T waves, so notching of the T wave in the lateral leads or dynamic changes in the T wave amplitude we call T wave alternands. Um, a very important test to do once you've done the rest of the ECG is to do a lying and standing ECG because the QT can prolong on standing. Um, because you get an increase in heart rate, which um, is a, a bit like a mini exercise test, you get increased sympathetic drive, which will prolong the QT interval. And then we do an exercise ECG as well, because QT prolongation recovery over at least 4 18 milliseconds is another marker of long QT syndrome. The other routine test that you should do is a, is a halter recording, looking specifically for QT analysis, because uh, QT prolongation is transient, it's often diurnal and changes with sympathetic tone. So the resting ECG may look normal or may only have a borderline QT prolongation, but actually on halter, suddenly it becomes manifest. So it's important to, to do a halter. And um, usually we do an echocardiogram just to check the heart is structurally normal. Those are the basic uh, tests that we do. And when it comes to deciding on management, is insertion of an ICD always the answer? No, definitely not. So again, it depends on the the condition and the severity. So let's start with long QT. Long QT, the standard treatment is beta blockers, which is the vast majority of patients just need to be on a beta blocker. And the appropriate beta blocker to use would be a more non-selective beta blocker, such as propranolol or nadolol. And these reduce sympathetic drive, and it's the increased sympathetic drive which triggers the arrhythmias in um, long QT syndrome because of a lack of adaptation of the QT interval with an increased heart rate. So it's important to adequately beta block the patients and you can prove that they're beta blocked on halter and that the QTs start to shorten. And you advise the patients to avoid certain drugs that are QT prolonging drugs. So uh, we would implant an ICD if a patient has a cardiac arrest despite beta blockade or is a first presentation of, of a cardiac arrest and they have very, very, very long QT intervals, 550, 600 milliseconds. So usually the first presentation of a cardiac arrest will precipitate an ICD implantation. And we recommend dual chamber ICDs to atrially pace 
to suppress QT prolongation. So we pace at about 70 to 80 beats per minute. We keep the QT short, we stabilize the heart rate. The other, um, the other conditions, so Brugada syndrome, we treat, that's a condition of COVID ST elevation and leads V1 to V3. If you look at the ESC guidelines on sudden cardiac death, which are about to be renewed in August, um, you will have everything you need to know about diagnosis and management of these conditions, but uh, they will be the most up-to-date guidelines. But essentially in Brugada, you get COVID ST elevation, which can be a rest, is spontaneous, or can be induced by a drug called antimaline, which is a sodium channel blocking drug, which is used as a diagnostic test to bring out Brugada pattern. And so patients with Brugada, if they're asymptomatic, we generally just give them advice to treat fever with paracetamol to bring the temperature down as high fever can trigger arrhythmias and to avoid certain drugs, um, which can be found on the website www.brugadadrugs.org. Um, but essentially they need to avoid drugs like beta blockers, uh, sodium channel blocking agents, and brachymol. So th those patients, generally the majority, we risk stratify them. So if you've got a patient with a resting type one pattern Brugada who is asymptomatic, then usually they're at low risk, but we have to look for other signs on the ECG, such as early repolarization um, or evidence of Brugada pattern in the peripheral leads, such as an AVL, AVR, or the lateral leads. And if they have a history, for example, of unexplained syncope and a Brugada type 1 ECG, this will be a high-risk patient, and we would strongly consider an ICD implantation. There's a lot of literature on risk stratification in Brugada. The Brugada group use an EP study, so they try and induce VT with stimulating the ventricle with wires in the heart. And that certainly is still used by some groups to identify a higher-risk patient. But overall, it hasn't got a particularly high sensitivity and specificity. And most people don't use an EP study anymore for risk stratification of Brugada. We're moving much more towards using ECG features in clinical history um, or syncope to identify the high-risk patient. We published a paper in Jack Clinical EP this year with a risk score, Brugada risk score, based on these ECG patterns I've just told you, which gives you a number and there's a risk calculator you can use online to use those features to predict the risk. CPVT is a condition we haven't really talked about yet. That's a condition of exercise-induced ventricular tachycardia. Um, it's, they classically have what we call bidirectional VT, which in English means they get alternating left and right bundle branch block pattern ECG and VT, or they have bidirectional couplets. So one beat is a right bundle, one beat is left bundle, or it's a right bundle with left, left axis, left, a right bundle with right axis beat or a left bundle with right axis and a left bundle with left axis. It could be any variation because it's really caused by triggered activity and in the little branches, the bundle branches of the ventricle. So they get spontaneous firing in these bundle branches and that's how you get the ectopic pattern. And these patients get adrenaline triggered ventricular arrhythmias, usually with exercise. It's classical and you exercise into a heart rate of 120 beats per minute. They start getting ectopy and then non-sustained VT or bidirectional couplets. And that's a classic manifestation uh, and they all when I say classic I mean it is literally diagnostic and also it's so reproducible so how do we treat those patients well again they're treated with beta blockers and then also if they're still getting XP or non-sustained VT or bidirectional couplets we can add flecainide, which is very effective because it reduces calcium release as well as being a sodium channel blocker but its main effect is it acts on the calcium uh, handling of the cell SR calcium release inhibits it so uh, so we use a combination of beta block and flecainide. Now, if you've got a patient who's had a cardiac arrest with CPVT, 
we generally would implant an ICD, but only after really, really controlling the arrhythmias. There's a lot of discussion now as to whether ICDs are actually harmful in CPVT. Because the problem is you get a shock from an ICD and you're awake, you get severe adrenergic surges, obviously you're frightened, it's painful, and then they end up getting a VTBS stall. And there's an emerging literature to show that actually ICDs and CPVT are, are really not effective because you can get these CPVT storms. And so uh, it's better to manage medically and the ICD is like your sort of safety net. So there's, a, there's some controversy, but some re a paper last year showed that it was more at risk, uh, it was, could be more harmful, particularly in children. But then actually there's another paper recently from Italy that shows that once you've controlled the arrhythmias with drugs, then the ICD actually does still save your life because it's really good for treating VF. But it has to be done in the situation where the arrhythmias are controlled medically. So at least it's just like your backup. The other treatment that I haven't really talked about yet is to inhibit adrenergic drive more if patients are asthmatic or intolerant of beta blockers is you can do a sympathectomy. So that's a small operation, a thoracoscopic um, surgical procedure where the surgeon cuts the lower portion of T1, the stellate ganglion, and that then reduces adrenergic drive to the heart. They usually cauterize the other ganglia, T2, T3, and T4 at the posterior wall of the thorax, um, which is on the left side, it's a left-sided uh, procedure. And that then reduces adrenergic drive to the heart and it stops the triggering of ventricular arrhythmia. And that's very, very effective uh, therapy. And that will probably be a step we would use before going to an ICD if a patient's intolerant of beta blockers or threconide if it's ineffective. And we use that for long QT and CPVT. That's fascinating. Um, when looking at ICDs, just one question on that. Um, there, I believe, are transvenous ICDs and subcutaneous ICDs, and I'm not sure which ones are used most commonly these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which ones are used more commonly, and yeah. how do you decide which patients get which type? Mm -hmm. So we use SICDs a lot, subcutaneous ICDs a lot in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, DCM patients. The issue is that you're looking at a young patient, often in their 30s and 40s, you want to implant a primary prevention device. But the thing you have to remember is that an ICD comes with a morbidity. You're putting leads in the heart. So that's all very well if you're 70 and you, your lead's going to last 10 or 15 years and you don't, you're probably never going to need a second one. But if you're 30, you're looking at changing a lead every 10 to 15 years, you're looking at a generator change every 7 to 10 years. Every time you do a procedure, it's a 3% risk of infection. So very quickly, you end up with an infected device or a lead fracture. Lead fracture, fractured leads need to be extracted. They have a one in 100 mortality. So then you've got a situation where you've got a well patient who's never had a cardiac arrest, who has an ICD to protect them, and then you come along and their lead is broken, and you then have to, say, put a 35-year-old or 40-year-old patient through a lead extraction procedure, giving them a mortality risk for a device that was put in to protect them from dying suddenly. So you end up with that iatrogenic risk, which uh, we try and avoid with the sub-Q ICD, because if you don't need to be paced, if you don't have conduction disease, you've got all the protection of a subcutaneous device without a lead in the heart. And if there is an infection, they don't generally cause um, endocarditis or any severe generalized sepsis, and you can remove them easily. So we're using a lot in Hokums. Obviously, if they've got an outflow tract gradient or conduction disease, we have to implant a transvenous ICD. Sub-Q ICDs have been used in long QT syndrome and also being used in Brigada. You have to be very, very careful in a lot of these conditions because the subcutaneous ICD relies on the sensing the ECG. And you've already heard how the ECG can change over time and the QT interval can change and T waves can change. 
So you need to be very careful the patient isn't going to get inappropriate shocks from changes in the, the amplitude of the T wave causing double counting. So you have to screen the patients very carefully. But there's a strong move, particularly in the younger patients, to implant sub-QICDs in inherited cardiac condition. Thank you. That is such a helpful walkthrough in terms of the ECG signs and the best ways to yeah. approach them. Thank you. Just yeah. before you leave, I'd love to ask you a couple of right. questions about yourself. What, sure. what do you personally like to do to switch off from your work life? Oh, well, uh, I, I like cycling a lot. So I actually cycle to work, but often go out on sort of long country rides, particularly this time of year with friends of mine. I also do a lot of swimming and if I and I started doing scuba diving as well. So I've learned to do that in the past five or six years, which is a great, fantastic thing to do on holiday if you go somewhere reasonably warm. And uh, yeah, those are the main things. I've got family, got kids and everything. So obviously I have to find time to ensure that I pay attention to them as well. <laughs> what, what's the best cycling route in your part of the world? Oh, uh, well, where I am, there's some really good, good hills. I live, in North, I live in North London, so I'm quite close to places like St Albans and, and Hertfordshire. So there's some good loops, literally quite close from where I live. But if you're down on uh, Sussex and the South Downs, then you're laughing, really, because there's yeah. loads to, uh, <laughs> That's it. We see a lot of cyclists down around Box Hill. Yeah, yeah, Box Hill, exactly. That's a classic cycle territory, isn't it? Particularly this time of year. Yeah. Uh, finally, do you have any words of advice for the cardiology trainees who are listening to this podcast who may feel like they've got a little bit left behind over the past couple of years with COVID changes to their training? Yeah. Do you have any yeah. pearls of wisdom for them? Um, I think that we've all, everybody's been distracted and had their normal way of working disrupted. So I think uh, everybody's in the same boat. There's no one ahead of anybody else. So if you're thinking I'm a cardiology trainee and I haven't done enough echoes, and I didn't get enough ablations, and I haven't done enough coronary angiograms, I'm behind on my training. Everybody's behind on their training. So as a, as a sort of uh, supervisor, as it were, or the panels that have to sort of assess the fellows as they go through, they're all looking at, a cohort of doctors that haven't had a chance to train so I think inevitably it's probably going to take a little bit longer to get the numbers that you might have needed before because uh, you're behind but you know we have the same thing as interventionists we have to report to NICOR and our numbers of procedures we have to do a certain number of procedures a year to maintain competence and I can see you know COVID's cut through everybody from that perspective so even the consultants you know even the consultants uh, have got to trouble so I think the, the thing to do is identify where your gaps are and then do your best to join an extra list or to do an extra echo list or to do an extra pacing clinic or pacing list, even if you're joining as a second operator, to just get some hands on and, and just get and, and, and roll your sleeves up. And usually what happens, as we all know very well, people go on leave. So this time of year is actually quite a good time of year. If, if other registrars are away, I know you may have to be covering a clinic in the morning, but if there's an empty slot in the afternoon and the consultant's on his own, you've got some experience. I'm sure coming along and giving a hand is, is always uh, much appreciated. So even if you think you may be saying things down, it's another learning opportunity. Thank you so much for giving up a bit of your okay. time. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Good luck with the rest of the programme. Great teaching. Topped off with some really helpful life advice too. Look for opportunities. Don't live life comparing yourselves to others. Instead, do what you can at work and enjoy it. Before we go, just a little reminder of some of those online resources that were mentioned in that chat. Professor Lambiazzi spoke about a website to help with safe drug use in Brugada syndrome. 
and you can find that at brigadadrugs.org. That is brigadadrugs.org. And once again, the Jack paper on the Brigada risk score and the new European Society of Cardiology guidelines for sudden cardiac death will both be available at links that I've put for you in the episode description. If you've liked today's episode or any of the other MedReg News podcast material, please fire us a message and say hi. You can email us at medregnews at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at medregnews. We really hope you've learnt as much from these episodes as we have learnt putting them together. Keep doing the great work that you're doing. Keep an inquisitive mind when it comes to learning more in your role as a medical registrar. And we will see you again very soon. Thank you.